If you would turn in your Bibles to 3 John, book of 3 John, near the end of the New Testament, third from last book, and I want to read verses 1 through 8. <coughs> Hear the word of God. The elder, the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the tr church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We, therefore, ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Lord God, we give you ourselves as we listen to your word, and I pray that your word would powerfully move in our lives and produce some of the blessings that you have ordained. We love you and thank you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned at the beginning, I'm beginning a new series on the Christian and prosperity, and uh, I decided to begin this series for a number of reasons, and I thought I'd just go ahead and outline them for you. First of all, it's a subject that very few pastors teach on. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever heard pastors teach on this subject. And uh, that means that the Church of Jesus Christ is illiterate on a huge body of biblical material, and that should not be the case. Secondly, there are extremes in the church on this subject, and we're not going to know what's an extreme and what's not an extreme if we haven't studied the Word of God on this. And thirdly, material blessings and uh, finances and things like that form such a, an important part and such a, a major role in God's promises uh, of the covenant that to ignore this subject means we're automatically going to be imbalanced. I think Dominion Covenant Church is imbalanced simply because we've not had teaching on this subject. A fourth, we're praying for uh, better jobs for a number of the people in our congregation. And uh, the only way we're going to have faith to pray as we ought to pray as we understand what God's promises are with respect to material blessings. And then the last reason is that I believe that God uh, wants me to supplement some of the teaching that I'm doing for Mercy Ministries on Wednesday evenings. I think this uh, ties in very much. God loves blessing above and beyond anything that we need for ourselves and our children so that we can be stewards in extending his kingdom. And so I think the two tie together beautifully. In fact, uh, the Lord's timing and a lot of the raising up of different ministries, I think, has been uh, neat in this congregation. Now, today's sermon is going to be a very basic introduction to this topic. I want us to have faith to begin praying with intensity for the Lord's blessings in the lives of each other and uh, to have real confidence that the Lord does not have any problem pouring riches into the lives of his people. A lot of Christians feel uncomfortable with this. They think, hey, if we're, if we're rich, there's something wrong with us. I don't want us to go to the opposite extreme and think that if we're poor, there's something wrong with us. 
uh, as we're going to be seeing, Gaius needs prayer. He needs prayer for both material prosperity and health, and yet he was spiritually strong. Uh, Paul had uh, temporary times when he was in need, and he saw the Lord coming through in those situations. Uh, The fact that the Jerusalem church was impoverished and needed money was not an indication that they were living in sin. Um, uh, Job was not living in sin. That's not the reason why he did not have wealth at at a particular time. And yet on the other end of things, I think we deprive ourselves unnecessarily when we uh, do not have faith to pray and expect that God will give above and beyond what we need for stewardship uh, increase. And so what I want to do is I want to analyze this passage by asking several questions of it. And the first question is this, what kind of prosperity is John talking about? I think the church in America has become so dualistic, so Greek in its thinking, that uh, they have a hard time uh, believing Uh, any of the promises that relate to physical blessings. Uh, Historically, dispensationalism has said, yes, in the Old Testament, Israel had both physical and spiritual blessings, but in the New Testament, it's only spiritual blessings. And uh, so what they do many times, they see the promises in the Old Testament, and they say, that's figurative of the spiritual blessings we're going to have uh, today. And so Deuteronomy 28 just does not fit into the vocabulary of a lot of American Christians. Gary North, I think, has uh, written very wisely on this, uh, this whole subject. So I don't want to assume we all know what kind of blessings being talked about in this passage. There's two kinds he's talking about. The first one, not controversial at all. If you look at verse 2, uh, he tells Gaius in verse 2, your soul prospers. Okay, it's not a prayer that it would prosper. His soul was already prospering, was flourishing. And uh, <clears throat> he gives some different indications in here on what that could be, what that looks like. And I think we need to pay attention to the descriptions of his soul prospering because to the degree our soul prospers, we can enter into the material benefits as well. We're going to see it's not automatic, but let's take a look at some of these Uh, these indications of a prosperous soul. Verse 3, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. Okay? He had the truth residing within him. He was filled with the truth of God. And I think this is an essential. If we are to spiritually prosper, we've got to have the word of God within. Memorize the word. We've got to study the word. We've got to understand it. But then the second indication was he was not a hypocrite. It goes on to say, just as you walk in the truth. He wanted to live out the truth that God had given to him. And another indication of a heavy, uh, healthy soul, verse 5. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. He was a faithful steward. He saw himself as a servant of other people. And it wasn't just his friends. And those that he loved, it was strangers that he took into his home. Now, this past Wednesday night, we saw that's one of the kinds of mercy ministries that uh, God spoke about. And that mercy ministries in Matthew 25 is at the very heart and essence of what Christianity is about, private as well as church. And one of those kinds of things that indicate we love the Lord, we serve him, was that we invite strangers in. And so uh, he was engaged in in mercy ministry. Verse 6, 
Another indication is love for others that was tangible, visible, something that could be seen, to have borne witness of your love before the church. And then he goes on to, to show in verses 6 through 8 that his giving of finances was another indication of his uh, right relationship before the Lord. He was a steward and he loved to share what he had with others. And so there were many different indications of a spiritual health. But verse 2 does not just talk about spiritual prosperity. Whatever the first phrase means, it means something in addition to the soul. The reason we know that is that the word just is comparing one thing to another thing. Okay, and what he's given, he's given the broad overall category. I pray that you may prosper in all things. And then he gives an illustration by one concrete evidence, health in your body in the visible, one evidence in the spiritual realm, your soul prospering. Okay, so there's two kinds of uh, prosperity that he's talking about. There's physical, uh, tangible, and um, then the second is the spiritual. Now, I've already described some of the spiritual blessing, uh, evidence of his spiritual prosperity in verses 5 through 8. But in order to do those things, he had to have this, the physical blessing as well. He had a house in which to invite strangers into. Uh, he, had, uh, he had money, and he had uh, some degree of health. And so in answer to the question, what kind of prosperity is John talking about, we'd have to answer, well, every kind of prosperity that there is, financial, social, a ministry being prospered, uh, everything we set our hands to do was being prospered. Um, you've read Deuteronomy 28, some of you, in preparation for the sermon today. That gives an illustration of the kinds of things that God is talking about. Now, you may have already anticipated the second question we're going to answer, and it's this. Is there any other New Testament precedent or confirmation for this? You know, this is just one verse. Uh, are you sure this is really New Testament teaching? Uh, skepticism tends to run strong, especially in the Reformed community. And we might be tempted to say, well, maybe this is just, um, you know, a meaningless greeting like we do. Have a nice day or how are you? And uh, maybe this is not something that is, you know, a wish for every person to really enter into, and I want to give a five-fold response to that because I want to nail the lid on that coffin so tight that uh, this lame excuse doesn't come up again. There's five reasons why that simply cannot be the, the case. The first reason is that the greetings in Scripture are never, ever meaningless. Uh, they, when, when, a, when a communication of blessing is, is given, the Spirit of God pours his blessing on those who are the sons of peace. When I say shalom, when I say may the Lord's blessings be upon you, I've got faith, I've got desires that his blessings actually will be transferred uh, into your lives. And this is one of the reasons why he absolutely forbids us and says it's a sin to bless a heretic, to greet a heretic. Look at the previous uh, book, my, my book, it's the previous um, page, Second John verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Why in the world would greeting a heretic, you know, saying shalom to a heretic, be such an awful thing in God's eyes? Well, because it's wishing God's peace to a person God doesn't want to give his peace to. Okay, he's saying there's a power in the blessing of shalom, and God says, I don't want you to be giving shalom uh, to those who are seeking to bind people and send them to hell. 
Now, my second response is, uh, the first one is that every greeting in the Scripture is, is a meaningful uh, a greeting. The second response is that every epistle, the greeting fits the needs of the congregation. This is actually a unique greeting in the Bible for the unique needs that are here. There is no standard, uh, only one way of doing things. My third response is that even if you could find secular greetings that were exactly like this, which I doubt, it doesn't matter. This is inspired. This is given by the Holy Spirit of God. It's inerrant, it's infallible, and God means what he says. And so I think we need to take it from that perspective. The fourth response is, well, yes, there is plenty of New Testament precedents for tangible, um, uh, tangible physical blessings. And I want you to take a look at a couple. If you look at Mark chapter 10, we'll look at a passage where it's undeniable he's talking about very physical blessings that um, uh, the Lord's going to bring into people's lives. Let's start at verse 21, Mark 10 and verse 21. Then Jesus, this is talking about the rich young ruler who had come, said, how can I inherit eternal life? Christ has been dialoguing with him. And then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. <clears throat> okay, here was a man who had riches as an idol, and of course we know Christ is in the business of destroying idols. Christ wanted this man to be turned into a steward who recognized I own nothing. It all belongs to the Lord, and I want to use this in a way that's consistent. The Lord can dispose or the Lord can give. And if we hold on to riches and we cling to it as if it's ours rather than the Lord's to use in our family, our grandchildren, our uh, extended uh, family, whatever, and, and, and the church, if we're using it not as a stewardship trust, God can't trust us with more. And so he says, I want it to be at my disposal to do as I please with. Now look at Christ's commentary on this. Verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches, get that word trust in riches, to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Okay, Lord, we're not one of those rich guys. <laughs> you know, we're falling after you. And Here's Christ's response to that. Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now, notice he talks about a stewardship relating to possessions as well as relating to people. 
And they're very tangible possessions as well. There's houses and there's lands, as well as the people. And notice that he indicates that there is a hundredfold increase the Lord brings into our lives if we've got a hundred percent stewardship. In other words, we've given up all. Now, very few people have truly given up everything. There's usually little things we hold back to ourselves and feel uncomfortable for the Lord to use it any way that he pleases. But he says, if we've given up all, we're 100% stewards, the Lord trusts us to pour back into our lives many times more. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. When God calls us to, to bring a drunk into our house and we bemoan the fact that he might ruin our carpet or our our sofa, as our former pastor, Dick Kaufman, was confronted with. That's where he learned stewardship. Oh, Lord, you really want me to do this. But he finally was resigned. Lord, this is your house. You know how to protect it better than we do. We want it used for ministry. And when we want our cars used for ministry and we want our food and everything else used for ministry, God says, okay, you're ready now for an extra measure. To me, pour back into your life because I know when I give above and beyond your needs, you're going to be kingdom resourcing. Okay, so that's what he's talking about. But if we, and I was challenged on this myself, um, there was uh, some stuff that was um, needed this past week, uh, kind of um, um, very, very, very expensive medicine uh, by uh, students. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, we're going to go broke if we're giving out this kind of stuff. And the Lord rebuked me and said, that's not yours anyway. And I was thinking, wow, I'm not even a steward in the little things that I have. And being able to bless the lives of others. Here's a person that's sick, you know, and I'm thinking that. Of course, I gave it to him right away, but um, we, we need to ask ourselves, am I steward or am I selfishly clinging and trying to hold on to and trying to trust in the things that we have? Now, that's just one scripture. There's many, many in the New Testament like this. Second Corinthians 9 promises money. Matthew 5 says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Matthew 6 promises clothing and food and drink. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, talks about rich people. And these rich people, um, he's telling them how to use their riches, but he's not saying they should stop being rich. Here's what he says. God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy the things we're stewards of. So he's not saying, I'm going to be a killjoy for you. No, he delights in delighting his people if they're stewards. And so anyway, there's plenty of New Testament precedents. It's not just a greeting. But my fifth response is this. Why in the world would we want to just limit it to the New Testament? <laughs> if we're really submitting to the New Testament, the New Testament tells us, read the Old Testament. I mean, that was the Bible of the early church. And over and over again, the New Testament tells us to submit to the Old Testament laws, to fear the Old Testament cursings, to rejoice in and have faith in the Old Testament promises that he's given. Let me just give you a few. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. This is a passage dealing with family issues. And in the course of quoting the Old Testament commandment, what Paul does is he gives his reason his rationale for why they ought to do this is that this is a promise. I mean, this is a commandment that has a promise attached to it in the Old Testament. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise 
that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Verse 3 is a quote of the promise from the, the Old Testament. Now, I, have not, I don't know any commentator that denies that in the Old Testament there was a very tangible, physical blessing that God attached to that commandment. The problem they have is in the New Testament, they say, well, it just doesn't work. You know, there's lots of people that die young. Now, they'll have to deal with their own unbelief, but I don't think there could be any question about the fact that Paul, without any apology, applies an Old Testament tangible promise, and he says it applies to the church of Jesus Christ. And I've got many, many similar examples. Here's one that just summarizes them all. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20 talks about all of the Old Testament promises, and it says this, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Okay? He's saying that all of the promises are confirmed in Christ through his people, through us. That includes all of the promises of Deuteronomy 28 that we looked at, uh, that uh, we've been reading this past week. Turn with me to Psalm 34. If all of the promises of the Old Testament are confirmed in Christ to us, and it should be absolutely no surprise to us when Peter uses this psalm, which promises all kinds of blessings in his people's lives, and he says, this psalm proves that God's going to take care of you when you're being persecuted. And he's talking to the people in 1 Peter. Psalm 34, verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. No, that's the wrong chapter. Uh, 34, 8 through 10. There we go. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want. That means there is nothing lacking. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. I mean, what a marvelous promise that the Lord gives. But Peter, by quoting this psalm and saying, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, trust in him. Trust in him for what? Well, the whole psalm's call for trust is to trust that the Lord will provide for us physically. He applies it and he says, take this psalm. It's yours. It's written for the church. Turn over to Psalm 112. This is a, another marvelous psalm. In fact, we're going to be singing it after the, after the sermon. A marvelous psalm of God's very physical, concrete provisions in our lives. And I just want to read for you the part that Paul quotes in verse 9. Um, Paul was saying, we can give, we can sow into the kingdom, and we can be trust that the Lord's going to be bringing back to us. And he uses this psalm to prove it. He says, here's a person who's dispersed abroad, who's given. He is dispersed abroad, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever, his horn will be exalted with honor. Now, Paul uses that as well as two other Old Testament quotations to prove when we sow money into the kingdom, God will cause us to reap more money back. In fact, Paul is so confident that those physical blessings continue to hold true today that Paul says, I can guarantee you, in effect, these are his words, I can guarantee you that you will sow in proportion, I mean, you will reap in proportion to how you sow. You sow generously, you're going to reap generously. You sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. 
And he draws that from Old Testament promises in the area of money in the New Testament. Now, people, many times, are just like, well, it, it, it just goes over their head. Everything's got to be spiritualized. But these are concrete, concrete money issues that he is talking about. Uh, there's many others. Uh, New Testament quotes promises from Isaiah 35 and 42 and 53 and 61 as a basis for New Testament healing. Well, healing is a pretty tangible blessing that the Lord gives. Uh, this past Thursday, <clears throat> I looked up all 235 Old Testament passages that are quoted in the New Testament, and it's just a fun exercise to read those because what it does is it opens your eyes to the reality the Bible of the New Testament was the Old Testament. You know, for most of their period of time, they trusted it. They submitted to its commandments. They feared its warnings, and they trusted its promises. It, they, the New Testament treats those promises as if they were written to the church. Why? Well, they were written to the church, okay? And so what I would have to say is, yes, there's plenty of precedence for John saying what he does in 3 John 2. Now, here's another question to help us to analyze this, um, this passage here. Is physical prosperity automatic? when we are walking in the truth, as Gaius was walking in the truth. And one extreme in the church says, yes, it is automatic, and if you're not wealthy and if you're not healthy, then you're living in sin. And I believe that's an error. Now, unfortunately, what happens is when errors come up or extremes come up in the church, people back way across to the other extreme, right? And uh, they say there is no connection between righteousness and prosperity. And those are the two extremes. I want to deal with each extreme. First, the one that says um, you're, you're in sin if, if you're not wealthy or healthy. And I would say that verse 2 hints rather strongly that that is not the case. It hints that Gaius was in need uh, financially, as was in need for prayer physically as well. I believe he was sick. For sure, we can say that his physical and his financial and other areas of prosperity were much lower than his spiritual prosperity was, okay? I think we can say that with confidence, but I think I. Howard Marshall in his commentary is correct when he says that the overall thrust of this epistle makes it fairly clear that Gaius was sick and uh, that he, he needed extra resources to continue doing some of the things that uh, he was doing. Now, here's his logic. Uh, he says, John does not pray for uh, inner spiritual prosperity. He already has that in abundance, but he does pray and feel a need to pray for physical and other areas of prosperity. So there seems to be a contrast there. And furthermore, um, his health appears to be bad enough that he had not been able to make it to church. And the way that this conclusion is reached is that in verse 10, we see that Diotrephes had been casting people out of the church for extending hospitality to the very people that Gaius was extending hospitality to, yet Gaius had not been kicked out of the church. And so there seems to be a communication gap there. <clears throat> and then secondly, Gaius doesn't even appear to know what's going on in his church, and uh, doesn't know that this letter has been sent from the Apostle John that verse 9 refers to. And so I, Howard Marshall, concludes, Gaius must have been, perhaps in a nearby town, was not well enough to make it uh, to church. And um, 
Um, whatever you think of that, by the way, I should say, those of you who know Greek and know that this is the present infinitive uh, tense might think, well, the present always has a continuous idea. May God continue to prosper you. Uh, look up in the Greek grammars. That's absolutely not true. Uh, infinitives carry no sense of time. And I think I. Howard Marshall's arguments are, are fairly clear that Gaius needed more in the area of the physical. Now, whatever you think of that exegesis, it is perfectly consistent with the rest of the scripture. There are many times where there is a temporary setback that God's people have. It's like a harvest. You can burn down a forest. There's always going to be a new harvest that's going to come up. God guarantees there's going to be harvest, but there are times of temporary setback. And you can think of Job. God says Job was blameless. He did not lose his finances because of sin. Okay, He was completely blameless, and yet all of his wealth was taken away. Paul said that there were times that he was naked and hungry, and he trusted God, and he saw God coming through in those times. And there were other times where he had far more than he needed for himself. Now, I do not think that poverty is the norm for the Christian. And uh, we'll be looking at some of that in, um, in future sermons. I don't think that's the norm. I think these would be temporary setbacks. So what I would say is there's not necessarily an immediate connection or always a permanent connection between the two. It's not something that's always immediately guaranteed. But here's the second extreme. Uh, the question is this, is there no relationship between righteousness and prosperity? And there's been a lot of people who have looked at Job and others, and they've concluded that. And I would think, and Gary North thinks, that flies in the face of just literally hundreds of scriptures that tie the two inextricably together. And I think if you look at verse 2 of this uh, third John passage, you can see the passage itself hints at that. For I rejoice, no, verse 2, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. The prayer is that in proportion to the soul's increase, that he would increase in the other areas as well. And that's exactly what Deuteronomy 28 and many other passages uh, promise. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy 28, I'm not going to read all of the uh, all of the verses, but I want to just give you a little bit of a flavor for why, how God connects walking in the truth together with prospering in all of the other areas of life. And Deuteronomy 28, beginning at verse 1. Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I commanded you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Now, I, I like that phrase, shall overtake you, because it implies see, there are times where we're, we're ahead of the blessing. You, you know, we have to wait for the blessing sometimes. But God also implies that he's going to chase us down with those blessings. Okay, So it shall overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Notice that because there. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. And he goes on. He talks about every different area of life where those blessings come into us. Uh, verse 8, the Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses and in all to which you set your hand. 
And um, he connects that inextricably with uh, how we walk, with our relationship to the Lord. And in future sermons, we're going to be showing precisely what kinds of things we need to be involved in if we want to see the full power of John's prayer in 3 John 2 taking place in our lives. A commitment to the body is one. Psalm 122.6 says of the church, May they prosper who love you. Oh, that's marvelous. It's marvelous. He's saying when people are committed to the church, to the extension of the church, they love it. And they're supporting the church. He says, may they prosper who love you. God promises uh, to prosper those who tithe, obedience, almsgiving. And we'll be looking at a few others as well. The next question almost answers itself. What is the connection of prayer to prosperity? And I think the answer is obvious. Paul prays for his prosperity because it's not there. And he prays for his prosperity because he knows it's going to take prayer to bring it there. It's not just automatic. We need to ask for it and bless each other uh, with it. And basically, we're only going to have the prosperity to the degree that we have the faith to ask. Now, there's tons and tons of scriptures which show this connection between seeking God's face and prosperity. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Uh, here's one of Isaiah. 2 Chronicles 26, verse 5, it says, As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. See the connection to prayer there? When he didn't seek the Lord, he thought he could do it all in his own strength, you know, that this is, this is by my own power, my own strength, my own wisdom, that I'm getting all of this stuff. Then the Lord stopped prospering. But when he was dependent upon the Lord and he sought the Lord, it says, As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now, here's another question. Sixth question, what is the goal of such a prayer as you find in 3 John, verse 2? And the answer is, it's to increase our stewardship. Uh, God doesn't make us prosperous so that we can selfishly cling to it. He prospers us so that we will have more than we need and be able to overflow into the lives of others, have an increased stewardship to serve others. And the more faithful our stewardship, the more God gives above and beyond what we need. In verse 5, it says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. He saw himself as a, as a, a steward, as a, as a servant of the brethren, and he was seeking to do things for them. Okay, He was faithful to God's calling. Psalm 35, verse 9, <clears throat> says this, There is no lack to those who fear him. Those who are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness find God adding to them all kinds of material blessings that they need and more. Why more? Because he delights in causing us to be resources in the lives of others as well. Part of stewardship is tithing, and Malachi promises to open up the floodgates of heaven to those who test him, and they tithe. Uh, part of uh, stewardship is giving above and beyond the tithe. Luke 6.38 says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. That's a promise of a God who cannot lie. Advancing God's kingdom is part of stewardship. And Christ promised, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Saving up an inheritance for our children and our children's children is a part of stewardship. Why? Because 
We're wanting to multiply our effectiveness, and what better way to do it than to enable our children to be further advanced when they're 21 years old than we were able to be. And yet God says, if you lay up an inheritance apart from a stewardship trust, and that's the way some people, they'll give to their children equally irregardless. Is that a word or is that not a word? Uh, of where their spiritual condition is at. And God says, no, no, you've got to be a steward of how you disperse these funds to make sure they're serving the kingdom. Not just serving your children, serving the kingdom through your children. Otherwise, Proverbs twenty twenty one says, an inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. And yet over and over he blesses those who save up. Uh, that's Paul's commandment. He says, <laughs> the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. He was talking about money there. Our whole life is a stewardship trust. And it's not until we begin to act as stewards that we begin to enter into the power of John's prayer. Gaius was there, and I'm absolutely convinced as a result of his being there and of Paul's prayer that they were answered in his life. In verse 6 and following, he goes on to say, second sentence, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We, therefore, ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. When they were supporting these missionaries, he said, you're a fellow worker. Just by supporting, that means they share in the reward. Christ says, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet receives the prophet's reward. You may not be able to do the things that a, a minister or somebody else can do, but as you share in their life, you share in their blessing, the Lord says. And um, if we don't have the faithfulness of verse 5, we're not going to have an increase of stewardship. The two go hand in hand. And so, um, Debulon, <coughs> when you pray for a, a car that is needed, you need to be framing your prayers in the language of stewardship and putting arguments into your mouth as to why, Lord, this is going to be used as the stewardship trust for you and not just selfishly for myself. When we pray for better health, we need to do so with the desire, Lord, with this health, I want to be stronger to do more for your kingdom. When we pray for increased uh, business, we, we do it because we say, I want to have more to give. I want to be able to extend your kingdom. I want to be able to enable my children down the road as I lay up for them to inherit the gates of the city. All of the prayers need to be framed in terms of stewardship. answers that in verse 4. It sure is not getting material blessings. That's not the greatest joy. He says, I have no greater joy, no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And if we're going to be blessed materially, we've got to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness rather than money. Okay, we've got to have our greatest joy in knowing God, who is the truth. If we seek and desire uh, the gift more than we do the giver, then we're short-circuiting the whole purpose and the power of John's prayer and many other prayers in the Scripture. And so we should have no greater joy than knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection rather than just seeking after money. Our soul's prosperity needs to be always in advance 
of our bodies' prosperity. We must make sure our relationship with God is far more important than money. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, here's something for perspective. If God was to answer the prayer of verse 2 in the life of some Christians, where we pray that you may prosper and be in health just as your soul prospers, I'm convinced a lot of them would instantly become paupers and would not uh, be very well. They'd be pretty sickly. Maybe some of them would be dead. (laughs) Why? Because their soul is not prospering. And I tell you, if you're not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as we begin to pray this prayer into each other's lives, it's going to be extremely dangerous prayer. Okay? And we want you to pray this prayer into each other's lives. So let's pray for prosperity for each other in every area of life. And this sermon series is designed to raise your faith expectations to a heightened level so that God will pour into our laps more than we've ever experienced before. Why? Because we want to increase the tents of this church and the tents of your families so that the sphere of dominion influence uh, is not hindered in any way. And may the Lord receive all of the praise and the glory. Brothers and sisters, pray this prayer of 3 John, verse 2, into each other's lives. And I hope it scares the daylights out of some of you who are spiritually lethargic into saying, no, okay, you're going to start being serious about this prayer stuff. I need to get my act together. I need to be seeking after the Lord. But in all of our lives, may it result in increased prosperity in everything that we set our hands to do. Amen. Father God, I thank you for your word. This is a whole new dimension of your covenant that we have just not looked at that much before. And I pray that you would enable us to uh, not only understand it, but with joy to lay hold of it and to seek to bless each other in this area. Uh, Father, we want to learn to be content, whether with little or with much. We're stewards, and you can take uh, away what we have or you can add as you please. Uh, It's up to you, Lord. But we want to be faithful, and Father, if it pleases you, we pray. And we know it does please you, because your word has said you desire uh, the prosperity of Zion and the prosperity of your people. And so we do pray that you would cause this, your people, to prosper in all that they do to be in health, and that their souls would prosper as well. And we pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.